Thank you for listening to Cure the Culture with Nia and Ebony. On this podcast, we facilitate conversations about health in the Black community and answer your questions through a research-based lens. We create a safe haven for Black patients and Black healthcare professionals to share their unique medical journeys. Tune in now for guidance, personal stories, and the latest research on everything Black health. So, welcome to another episode of Cure the Culture. Hey, hey. This is Ebony Gatson, and we are here with Nia Phillips. Hey, how's everybody doing? How was your week, Eb? My week was good. It's definitely fall vibes these days, but yeah. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm feeling a little, like I have a little bit of fatigue, a little bit of COVID fatigue, mm-hmm. which is great because that's what our episode is about today. Word. Part of our episode. Mm-hmm. Compassion fatigue. I, I I do. I have a little bit of compassion. Not. I wouldn't say compassion fatigue for me. I'm just like, mm-hmm. I thought after like the vaccine was rolled out, I thought we would kind of be like, you know, this is our second year, literally our second year of this. Yeah. And I think I'm kind of just, I'm realizing this is, you know, the new normal and this might be how we practice medicine. Like I'm yes. literally climbing into the back of cars to see patients, you know, every day. Yeah. Whoa. So because like we can't have them in the office and we can't expose patients who have no symptoms, which makes sense. But mm-hmm. after two years of practicing medicine this way, it's it's like completely impacted the way that I see my patients, the way I can interact with my patients. Because even if they come in for simple like well visit, mm-hmm. if they have any symptoms whatsoever, it's like, All right. you know. It can't kinda, take that risk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. So since we're kind of like talking around it a little bit, I think our second episode is a good time for us to really let the viewers in on who we are or the listeners. I got to get used to that. I know. (laughs) On who we are, right? Why are we doing this and why should they care what we have to say about it? I know. Who are we, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because that's all right. I think think we should start with just... First of all, I think our friendship is amazing. I think mm-hmm. me and Ebony have been friends, like I said, in the first episode for 14 years. And I think that's like a milestone in itself. Yeah. This is my longest relationship. Exactly. Literally. And <laughs> she's been with me literally since freshman year of high school. Yeah. And we've gone through two, now two degrees. I'm working on my third degree. So mm-hmm. we've gone through multiple chapters, multiple boyfriends. Now I'm married. Yep. So it's yep. just... It's been like multiple major life events, multiple research projects for you, Ab Grant. Yeah, yeah. But I think, what, what do you want the viewers to know about you? What do you? What is like? What are your big things? Well, my big thing, I think, is that I come from a research background, which is why I care so much about how research oriented this podcast is. So, like when I was at St. John's, I ran a research study as an undergrad, and I think that's one of my favorite accomplishments there. I think it's kind of hard to do and to get that grant funding to do that at such a young age. I was literally still a teenager. But that kind of catapulted me into this direct practice work that I'm in now. I thought it made sense to get a a master's in social work because the social work degree is so versatile. But I can also still see clients, right? Like I can be a therapist, but I could also do some macro level work if I want to. I could also advocate for a program implementation and policy advocacy. I mean, there's just so many places you can go. Uh, with a social work degree. And I can also open my own practice one day, which is going to be great. 
Which we're speaking that into existence. That's we're in the speaking works. that into existence, right? <laughs> That'd be a bit of black girl magic for me. So. I, I mean, honestly, Ebony, I think you never give yourself enough credit. Ebony <laughs> it has literally basically run a practice uh, for her practice. And honestly, she has a great partnership with with yeah, my you supervisor know, Tracy and, and your yeah. with your supervisor. But mm-hmm. I feel like you since the beginning, you you she's trusted you with with her practice and you have really mm-hmm. helped catapult it into to the success that it is today. Oh, thank you. And I can't wait for you to start your own chapter, but I still feel like, you know, we're we're always in the right place, I feel like, at mm-hmm. the right time. Your accomplishments have helped me with some of the things that I have. Ebony has like truly shaped our friendship has not only shaped me as a person, but it's also shaped how I practice medicine. Because yeah, like definitely. you working with the groups that you work with and telling me HIPAA compliant, of course, but about your clients and about the struggles your clients face has really changed how I practice medicine. Because in medical school, we're not, or in PA school or NP school, we're not always, there's so much content to get through. There's so much about learning about the human body to get through that we don't spend nearly as much time about just learning how to be affirming and validating to our patients yeah, um, because we're trying to get to an end diagnosis, right? And then get our patients out in a better state of mind, but also just functionally better. It was hard for me to kind of take all this, like three years of medical school. And then, you know, then the real practice came into learning how to develop your relationship with your patients and not only help them with their physical health, but also validate a part of their mental health and help them explore that as well. So if it wasn't for you, I feel like my patients, you've trusted, you've really helped me, you know, develop the skill set that I have and oh, that's mental so validating. Health. Yeah, no, it's it's a huge part, and I and I think like we work vice versa with each other. We do. I think, it's, I think it's, because I think I have more understanding about physical health because of you, and so it allows me to speak to psychiatrists when we're treatment team planning to like have more of that background about like well, what is happening for them? What are the you know parts of it in their perspective that I need to be considerate of or how can I actually give some real psychoeducation to my clients from a physical standpoint about what's happening in their body when they have anxiety? Like, I think that real mind-body connection is what we've embodied in our relationship, but then in how we practice. Yeah, yeah, no. I I think part of the reason why, you know, as I was telling our listeners before, like I recruited you so heavily into this podcast and you're such an important part of it because I think, providers just don't understand how much of a link there is between your patients doing well on any medication or any. And it's also about communication, like how we communicate with our patients. Getting that buy-in. Letting them know about potential side effects and how that is like so important about anything that we're prescribing and just taking the time to have a a conversation about any part of their care. But I Mm -hmm. think today we're going to be talking about the COVID word. So that's... Sure. (laughs) And that makes sense, right? Because we're healthcare workers and we've had quite an experience with COVID. I know. Let's talk a little bit about what it's been like for us, just maybe individually and then maybe for our respective industries. I don't think medicine will ever be the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is kind of like, um, I don't like comparing epidemics or pandemics. I know. know? But it's like hierarchy and trauma. (laughs) I know. It's it's just not a great thing to do. But (laughs) I think this is definitely change. It doesn't matter if you're in private practice. It doesn't matter if you're an outpatient clinical setting. It doesn't matter if you're a 
a clinic, like a drop-in mm-hmm. clinic, an urgent care, a hospital, if you're practicing in the emergency room, if you're practicing in a specialty, I think that COVID has impacted how we all practice. It has from long-haul COVID, where patients are, ex- are experiencing symptoms well after their COVID diagnosis and can experience symptoms, mental health symptoms, so psychiatric symptoms of anxiety, depression, sleep changes, to physical symptoms, shortness of breath, not being able to get to their baseline prior to COVID, not being able to be as as active as they used to be. It has impacted how we practice and how our patients, and it's a disease we're still learning so much about. Even though we know way more about it than we, we did six months ago, a year ago, it's still something that it's not even in textbooks yet. Like I just yeah. got my textbooks for this year for my doctorate program and it's not even in our textbooks, you know? We are literally part of history. Yeah. yeah so it's just been, it's been such a humbling experience in medicine, we like to like, just like the DSM-5, you know, we like to have, it's a, it's a, we like to have these health, these guidelines, these standards of practice and everything is loose and you have to be, not everybody's going to present how they do in a textbook. So we keep that in mind, but it's just interesting that COVID has literally shaken up everything, you know, even from telehealth, like for you, telehealth has become this major. It's the main vessel now. Yeah. What about you? What do you think? What are your thoughts? I think that it's definitely changed the game for mental health, but I I would dare say for the good. And oh my God, why does that feel cringy to say? But it's just like so much access now. So many of the things that they told us that we couldn't do or that insurance wouldn't reimburse is now all of a sudden like, yeah, this is, we'll do that remote. We'll do that telehealth. Yeah. And yeah. like, okay, yeah, right? But that like, does expand, like it expands access to, I mean, for me, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like dicey and every provider is like so different. I think mm-hmm. telehealth for me has like a, a role, especially for for mental health consultations or just that original. I think people feel so much more comfortable in their house to talk about things that like that. But I, I also think it's like, oh, I still want to get my patients into the office for their well visits. I still want to get them caught up on their vaccines. Mm-hmm, I still mm-hmm. want to see them because there's something like doing a physical exam. Yeah, but you I, need to. But yeah. you have to meet your patients where they're at, right? So sometimes the only thing they have time for is to speak to you through at home. And this this does expand access to care. Uh, and I know you had like a huge influx of patients. Oh my goodness. I still have a waiting list to this day and we're approaching 2022 now. So I think that that's something that has contributed to my compassion fatigue. Like I think right now I'm in a good place where I've gotten a, a good rhythm, but for a while it was just like nonstop bombardment and you felt this overwhelming need to show up for everyone, if I'm being quite honest. And I know that's a bit hyperbolic to say, but it's like, this is literally our vocation. We've decided to be healers. And then when a pandemic hits and it has such a huge mental health component, you feel that compulsion to show up. So I think like that's something I've noticed even among colleagues, like is really, there's more conversation about compassion fatigue and more real checking in. Like, how are you? No, like, how are you? We even do it more like we did at the beginning of this recording. Right. And I think, I think burnout for practicing physicians and NPs and PAs, healthcare providers, nurses, uh, nursing assistants, I think it's been it's been high. Yeah. Now we are finally, I, I'm hoping the field will stop 
in in medicine, it, it's kind of like this like work until you die mentality, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you can very like harder. Yeah, yeah, it's very. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, like mm-hmm. in the last episode with with Doctor with Doctor Beth Walker, and mm-hmm. it's a little bit like you have to sacrifice yourself, you know, it's literally like mm-hmm. medic. You remember the game medic? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Throwing it back to high school. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's how it feels. Like I have to get out there. I have to like, like, just like mm-hmm. you're saying, I have to save every single person. But I think we're trying we're finally taking a step back and realizing that in order to do our best work, mm-hmm. we have to take care of ourselves. And right in order to help the most people. And we always say this, Ebony, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first before you can grab for for someone else. It's the same kind of thing. So I think as we transition into the COVID conversation, one thing that's really important for me is that my listeners are vaccinated. Mm -hmm. It is the most important thing. It will help all of us, right? Like every healthcare provider, you are helping by getting vaccinated. Because you're not flooding the ERs, you're not flooding our office, you're allowing us to get back to, I don't want to say normal, but you're allowing us to see patients at a tempo that is appropriate and safe. So the more non-vaccinated people we have, the more likely you are to end up in the hospital, the more likely you are to end up in the emergency room, the more likely you are to end up in the ICU. And it's a trickle-down effect, right? Mm -hmm. If people Mm -hmm. can't go to the emergency room for care, where do they go? They go to their primary care doctors. Right. Which is great, but there's a certain level of care that we cannot provide in your primary care office. Mm-hmm. And if we are rushed by every single person because of this, the ER has an 18-hour or 12-hour wait, mm-hmm. it's just not, a, it's a cycle, you know? Right. And even if, so by getting vaccinated, you are helping the true thanks, right? It's not, I appreciated the clapping when I was working in New York City during the beginning of the pandemic, but the true thank you is to get vaccinated and to allow us to be able to see patients at a a normal tempo. <laughs> so we can do a great job of assessing you and figuring out where you need to be. It really has a domino effect, like from a societal level too, because a lot of the work I was doing was like, you know, connecting with families of people that had COVID for the grief program at the hospital near my practice. So it's like, Think about your healthcare workers, you know, think about showing up for providers in a real way, but also think about your family, you know, chosen and family of origin, like whoever you're spending time around, that's, that's who it's impacting. Yes. Because even if like you don't want to be vaccinated for whatever reason, even if you do, or you can't, or you can't be, be conscientious of the things that you can do. If you're going to make that decision, then you still need to be wearing masks. You still need to be careful about who you're around because you can still carry the virus and you can still impact. We can all carry the virus, even if we're vaccinated, but you're more likely to carry the virus if you are non-vaccinated and you're more likely to end up sick and really, really in a bad situation physically. So just keep that in mind. That's my big thing for our listeners. We're very, very grateful to be having a slight COVID conversation today. I think we'll get into it a little bit more in later episodes, but we are going to talk Mm -hmm. about how it's affected the Black community, Mm -hmm. why it's affecting the Black community so much, what we can do to to prepare ourselves. What are our best options right now in, in 2021, almost 2022? Can you believe it? Right. And what comes next? Right. I, 
I don't want to say after because <laughs> that seems right, like a joke. But like, yeah, what do we, how do we move forward? What are the action steps? So we have today, I'm so excited to have her. We have Dr. Keisha Bentley Edwards. She is an associate professor in medicine at Duke University School of Medicine. She does a lot of research and she is the director of research for the Cook Center of Social Equity at Duke University. Her research investigates how racism, gender, and culture influence African-Americans' healthy development through the lifespan. She is an applied researcher, but she also regularly shares her expertise with policymakers, practitioners, and the broader community. She got her master's from Columbia University in 2000, and she got her PhD at the University of Penn in 2002. So we are honored to have our guest today, Dr. Keisha Bentley-Edwards. Thank you, Dr. Bentley, for joining us. I am so happy to be here and to talk to you. This is wonderful. Oh, great. So actually, the reason I found you was because I was reading, I think it was was either a Washington Post article or a New York Times article, and you came up on my screen. It was about COVID-19 and healthcare inequities and how how COVID-19 has affected marginalized communities, the Black population, and people of color in general. And I was like, oh, she goes, she's professor at Duke, and I'm going to try to contact her. So thank you so much for, thank God for Google, because I was able to find your email address. It's kind of scary, even as a practitioner. Yeah. Even as a practitioner, how accessible our information is on the internet. But I think for, for certain things, it's really nice. So thank you so much for joining us. One of the first things I like to ask our guests is kind of, how did you get into this field? How did you, I really like our listeners to be able to understand. And I think representation and seeing yourself in a larger screen is so important. I know it was very important for me growing up when I saw my first Black doctor and my pediatrician was Black. So can you just explain to us a little bit about yourself and how you became such an expert in this topic and and a little bit about the research for COVID-19? Sure. I have somewhat of a, I guess, a windy road that got me here. I'm from Southern California, a city called Santa Ana, which is about 30 minutes south of Los Angeles, but still very much a city (laughs) with big city problems, particularly growing up in the 90s, gang violence, all that was happening. But my family life was very safe and secure. We were that house that everyone came to when you needed a safe space. And so because of that, I was always very aware that life was not fair (laughs) and it was not fair to people that I loved. And so I knew coming from the family that I come from, where we are very focused on youth development. My father was a coach, a, a youth sports coach. I have aunts, school bus drivers, teachers, other rec center folks. So I grew up in this environment, which was very focused on protecting kids and families. So I knew that that was going to be a major focus of mine. And when I went to Howard for undergrad, that was when I really started learning about disparities and racism in a more academic way. So not just personal experience, you know, this is what happened to me at work and can you believe this? But realizing that this was truly systemic and structural, and especially when it came to economic disparities, but infant mortality, the ways that we die of things that have standards of care it really sparked an interest. And then I said, well, let me learn about resilience. 
That's where I said, said, you know, solutions. Yeah, (laughs) I was working. I was a psychology major and I was working with faculty on different projects around education and psychological health, Wade Boykin and Hope Hill from Howard University. And really just like, well, the situation we're in is what we're in. What can we do so that more people can survive and thrive? And that was really my focus at that time, which in a lot of ways, it continued into my master's and my PhD. But then I started to also get frustrated that why do we have to keep surviving <laughs> and thriving despite despite the system instead of the system supporting us? And so a lot of my work that I do comes out of frustration, to be honest with you. I want to feel like I'm actually attacking areas and asking questions. And I have this academic pedigree that is truly a blessing, but it means more to other people probably than it does to me. Uh, But I understand the privilege that it gives me and the rooms that it allows me to be in. And so when I go in those rooms, I bring my family, I bring my community with me to make sure their voices are heard. Because when we talk about disparities in public health, we're not talking about numbers. We're talking about my cousins. Yeah, we're talking about yeah. <laughs> We're right. talking about me sometimes. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> which, which makes it very different. It's not an academic exercise for me. Although I take an academic approach, it's not just an exercise. It's not just something I'm interested in at this moment. When I write, part of how people connect is that I try to write and translate these findings and make it so that my family members can understand and that also so that people can see that see themselves in the work and know that they're not alone. There's a lot of things, although we talk about disparities, there's a lot of things that we don't talk about that Black people face at disproportionate rates, whether it's in childhood, Black girls and bullying, suicidality, Alzheimer's disease for older adults, infertility for Black women in middle age. Like there are these things that happen to us that we often get ignored about. And that really frustrates me. So a part, not just speaking truth to power, sometimes it's just speaking the truth so that other people can know that they're not alone and that they have something, some, something that we can all fight for. You know, you're hitting on some great points. And I think that something we love to ask all of our guests when we're when they come on the show is what is your experience also as a black patient? And I think with your research experience, you might also be able to support that with some research about what other patients have maybe experienced. Like what is happening in that room with other providers and why is it important to have POC providers? Absolutely. So. There's so much to that. When I was a kid, I very much remember, and this isn't my experience, this is my father's experience, when he got the first Black doctor that I remember, who is still my my father's doctor 30 years later. And I bring this up because oftentimes people don't understand statistics. And so they'll see the average blood pressure rate for Black men is this much higher than for white people or the general population. And so for years, when my doctor was, when my father was going to the doctors, he was told that his blood pressure was normal, but they weren't finishing the sentence to say it's normal for a Black man. 
I think one might have said it. So then he went to Dr. Wainwright, who became our family physician, Black man in Orange County, California. And he was like, well, what are you doing for your blood pressure? And my dad, who at that time was in his, probably his uh, mid to late thirties, he said, nothing. <laughs> He's like, I have <laughs> a normal blood pressure. I had normal blood pressure. And he said, no, you have, your blood pressure is typical for a black man, but it is by no means normal. <laughs> and this needs to be under control. And so I think him being a Black doctor, he was able to parse out where other people may have misunderstood the messages of looking at disparities to say, this is what the average is for. There's a difference between when we talk, a lot of times I do work about what we accept as normal. And so some people inter interpret normal as this is what happens the most, or this is what the average is, and not necessarily saying also looking at normal as in your values, like what you find acceptable. And so his other doctors found his blood pressure to be acceptable and not something that needed to be intervened upon. Fortunately, when he had our Black doctor, he said, no, this is something that needs to be addressed. And, and to be honest with you, this is a lifelong issue. And, and we know that hypertension is an indicator for so much in our lives, stroke, kidneys. And we know that we have these disparities and on all of these different things, and it triggers. So yes, you can talk to a certain extent about personal behaviors, but we also have to talk about the systems that allow someone to go to multiple doctors and say that your blood pressure is fine, and then <laughs> to find out that it is not fine, and the ramifications that it has into old age. I'm sorry, Dad, I'm not calling you old. Uh, <laughs> 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 That's where it comes in. And then thinking about COVID, when we first heard, started hearing about COVID, you had these two conflicting stories, right? You had this, we're all in this together. This is a disease that does not see color. And then on the other side, the early ones were Black people are immune to COVID. And, you know, because it's not attacking, it hasn't hit Africa yet. So Black people are immune. And I remember saying, what in the crack is this? <laughs> you know, when you look at what the risk, those early risk factors that people were talking about diabetes, hypertension, asthma. If you were to talk about some of the top three health burdens and disparities that Black people have, I was like, there's no way that we are not going to get hit harder. But that was a testing issue. And then once testing started to catch up and we were allowed to be tested, we found out that that was not the truth and that Black people, of course, were disproportionately affected at risk and affected by COVID, both by hospitalizations as well as death at an earlier age at that. And I think that's like a key point at an earlier age, because I think I think sometimes when we talk about statistics, I always say like there's lies and then there's statistics, right? So those can, depending exactly how you said, how you interpret something and if you finish the sentence, because age plays a big risk factor. Even when we talk about, and also when people say it's a socioeconomic issue, 
when we adjust for maternal mortality and, and things like that, it doesn't matter because they have been able it. Now we can statistically say that no matter what the age or what, what the socioeconomic status of a black mother is, she's still more at risk. And I think statistics can be funny that way. So I, I really appreciate you highlighting that particular. Absolutely. No, we have to compare apples to apples, right? So oftentimes we'll compare the general black population with the general white population without acknowledging the systems that have been in place that make our experiences different. So I'm not talking about like a genetic racial difference. I'm talking about race as a social construct, which means that these social dynamics affect people differently by race because it is a social construct. So when we talk about education, it is a protective factor on some ways, but it we can call it, economists call it a diminishing return. So we may get some benefit from having better education, but we don't get the same benefits as Black people as you would for a white person. We don't see the same effects for income. We're at the Cook Center where I'm at at Duke, we are looking at wealth and its influence because wealth is a bit different. That's intergenerational. Those safety cushions, you know, we know if you're looking in a upper mid-income or an affluent neighborhood and there's Black people, the Black people are probably making a lot more money than their neighbors, but their wealth is often lower than their neighbors. And so those are things. So the money is not the same in this social construct. And then what happens when you're the only Black person or the only Black woman in the room. And those hills that you have to climb oftentimes alone, what does it do to your body to have to fight every time you go to work, every time you go to the store, every time you go to the doctors? And it's not just that you have to fight for yourself when you've achieved it, and especially if you're someone like me who is a first-generation college or was a first-generation college student, you also are that person in your family when something goes wrong and when things go right, but especially when, when things go wrong that people call to help them navigate systems. So we have to have these honest conversations about how we can protect ourselves and each other from, from this system that wasn't built for us. That reminds me of, there was a book Jane Allen wrote, Black Girls Must Die Exhausted. And I think the, the weathering hypothesis there is that over time, what I'm hearing you say, Dr. Dr. Bentley, is that over time, these microaggressions and racial disparities and whatever you want to call it, it does affect us. I know personally from doing the research on a genomic level, it affects us. The stress, stress affects your telomeres, which affects your body's ability to age without disease burden, and then also without further complications from that disease. So I think that's like just such an excellent, an excellent thing, because I think sometimes people, especially people from other uh, races may say, well, you know, I experience racism too, but I feel like for some reason, black people, especially me, and I also, I understand what you're saying particularly, because now that I am a healthcare provider, it's like every room that I go into, I am usually the only one. And that's kind of the reason me and Ebony started this podcast, because we wanted to break down literacy so that we can teach people about what it took us so long to learn about in school and kind of what you learned about in school in Howard. Because understanding that your experience is different is very different than actually being able to know why your experience is different. And I think when I listen to other podcasts, other medical podcasts, something that really bothers me is when these 
these medical topics are just glazed over and yeah, it affects black patients more or it affects black people more, but why, why are we not talking about the why? I think now COVID has really allowed us to pinpoint, yeah, there is healthcare disparities, but why, and what are we going to do to address it? Another question I have for you is since we do know, like I will never forget my first black provider. It seems like your father will never forget his and is still his black doctor. Should patients be seeking out? I mean, is it a comfort level? Some people, like our last guest said, I just want to go see an expert. Whoever that expert is, I want to make sure that I'm armed with the information and have a list of questions and I'm preparing myself to to go into an exam room with any healthcare provider, any therapist or any social worker and be able to advocate for myself. Yeah, that's a great question. So what I tend to tell people is that if you have access to a person of color, go find that person. And so that is that is usually what my first choice would be, is to find a person of color. But we also know that the numbers of physicians by race, whether it's at every level of, of the medical care profession, <laughs> that they don't necessarily demonstrate that you can have yes. access to That's uh, also a privilege and a luxury. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a privilege. And so I've tried to find a balance of having people of color who are my care providers, but also people, I try to peek in to see what a person would say on their website around equity, around the type of work that they do. For me as a Black woman, I know when I was pregnant with my with my girls, it was very scary for me because I've been looking at infant mortality exactly. since I was a college I know. student. I know. I've yeah. been looking at, you know, <laughs> I've been teaching it for 15 years, you know, and these numbers hadn't changed very much, right? We still have these. So I was pretty scared. I was high risk. I was older. I had twins. I had a history of fibroids. I'd already had a few surgeries. And so when I was looking, I asked around and then I was moving. (laughs) I was in a different city. So there were so many things like I didn't know anybody When I started my pregnancy, I was in a very uh, hellish work environment, the stress. And so at the end of my pregnancy, I was here at Duke, and that was a much better situation. But I ended up not having a Black doctor, but there were things that I looked for. I wanted someone who had experience with removing fibroids, who said that they knew how to remove fibroids and preserve a uterus, right? Because then I knew that they worked with Black women. (laughs) gynecologist yeah Mm because yeah it it disproportionately affects black women at an earlier age I had my first fibroid surgery when I was 28 so I knew that anyone who had that experience and said it in that specific way had experience working with black women and so that was really how and I had to do it fast because I was high risk I was like I gotta find someone fast I can't dilly dally and you know (laughs) so so yeah, so that was good, but it was it was very scary. And so what I typically tell people, especially new mothers or people planning to become mothers, is to try to find a person of color doctor or provider. It doesn't have to be a, a doctor. And even then, you need to ask questions because people are trained in racist systems. So you need to make sure that they're kin folks, right? And not just skin mm-hmm. folks. Yes. So, yeah. That they're in the community. Yeah. yeah. They are in the community, that they are not. If you go to a place and they have a sign on their door that says no bonnets, 
you know, just turn around. Right? Not a safe space. Yeah. Not a safe space for you. Even yeah. if everybody in there looks like you, the fact that you're a healthcare system and you're going to turn someone away because you're like, you're not respecting the professionalism of this place because you're wearing sleep clothes. That has nothing to do with it. Your patient yeah. is your patient. You know, your patient that's is not your, your job to to yeah. regulate who comes in and out of your office. It's your job to take care of people. Especially with the slippers and pajama pants. When I know- <laughs> Those are I some of my best it. patients. <laughs> yeah. That's how I look at it. It's like, they are coming here. They clearly do Their not- Their true authentic self. And they they're still coming. coming. They are still coming. Like they are coming to the doctors. And if, then you would say that they weren't compliant, right? So any doctor that is putting barriers to your care, you need to find a new doctor. So that's how I look at it. And so definitely get a person of color if you can, but make sure that if you do have one, that they really are kinfolk and not just skin folk. <laughs> so, and I think that's why kind of this podcast, we're trying to tell people, these are the things like how we talked about fibroids and we talked about like, the, there are certain things that just, I feel like I say this to people, like to my patients, and they're like, oh, I had no idea. Skin cancer is an example I use time and time again. Breast cancer is another one that I use time and time again. And it's not that, it's just that the messages are not very targeted for us. When we talk about like stroke and we talk about cardiac disease and and a heart attack, everybody can tell you the signs and symptoms for the most part. Even the general lay population, we've come out with public health campaigns so that people can recognize, I'm having left-sided chest pain. I need to go to the emergency room, you know, but we don't have any of these targeted campaigns for Black women, Black kids, children, for asthma and other health disparities that we do see so that people are aware. And I think part of the, you can have the conversation if you're not aware that you're more at risk because of your race. So I I thank you so so much, Dr. Bentley, for for just speaking to that. We talked a little bit about your experience when you were having twins in high risk. When you found your provider, did you find that it was because she had experience with Black women that even though she wasn't necessarily a Black physician or a Black healthcare provider, did you find that your experience was a positive one? Yeah, it was a positive one. She, I think what was most important for me is that she believed me. (laughs) She understood that I knew my body very well. You're you know, in your I, body. I'm in my body. And I'm 24 7. 24 7. And that something, when I said something didn't feel right, she believed me. So, like when I felt like I was waking up and my heart was beating fast, I'd be sitting and I was breathing hard. And I was like, I know I'm pregnant. And I know I'm sure I'm only five, two. You know, those <laughs> girls in my belly were taking up so much space. Uh, <laughs> they were. And, but I also knew my family history of heart disease. I knew this. And so, and I knew what was the biggest killer of women after they had a baby is, and I did not want them to find out that I had heart disease at the same time that I was having babies. Like, and I said it, I just looked at her. I said, my heart rate is not right. You know, (laughs) it is not right. And at first she was like, well, it's kind of normal. I said, no, my heart rate is not right. I have a family history of people dying early from heart disease. And she made the referral to the cardiologist. And I appreciated that because, and I, I just, I was like, I do not want to die while you're on the table. And she respected that. She didn't say, oh, well, you know, the numbers are scary, blah, blah, blah. And I was fine. 
I was fine. My heart was strong. I'm just, I was a short woman having twins. <laughs> but <laughs> and, sometimes and, you need that. Like, and, and I always tell my patients, like, if there's something that like I, and I say this time and time again, probably every episode, I'm going to say this, you should never hesitate to give somebody what they need. And I commend your OBGYN for doing that because what if there was something, and for you, just the stress when you're already pregnant with twins, you're already transitioning, just having a cardiologist who's trained in cardiology to say, no, I've done an evaluation. We can do these X, Y, and Z testing just to make sure. But for right now, this is my professional opinion. I think it means so much, you know? Well, you know, the thing about it is that for other groups, that is a normal response. And for some reason, for Black people, it's unusual and it should not be unusual. You should not only get tests when you absolutely know that you're going to find something malignant, right? <laughs> like you should be able to do some tests when you say something is suspicious or not quite right. Let's catch this before it becomes a problem. And, and when you're talking about breast cancer, this is an issue for Black women is that we'll say something doesn't feel right in our our intuition or knowledge of our bodies often gets dismissed so that by the time doctors have a sense of urgency about what we're experiencing, things are so far gone. And so we have to be very proactive. I do have to think, what do I have to say so that they can understand? And and this is me. And, and it's still a bit of anxiety for me. And I'm happy with my providers right now. You know, but I've had times in the past where I've said, this does not feel right. Or my body is not right. Or I'm in pain. And I tend to be a very, like, even killed person. So because look, I came from my neighborhood was a little rough. You don't get out of your neighborhood by being out of your um, neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you can't, you know, I so I tend to have a very calm demeanor. But I would say, hey, I'm in a lot of pain right now. And doctors would not understand the urgency that if Keisha Bentley is saying that she's in a lot of pain, that means that she's about to tear this room apart. apart. Right. <laughs> and, right. But I know that that's going to increase my pain. So I'm going to just keep it level because that's part of my pain management strategy. Uh, but but having to just having to constantly be in a, I've had to do that myself, Dr. Bentley, like going to the OBGYN. I've cried in OBGYNs as a healthcare provider. Yes. Right. Because I know there's something wrong. And I'm frustrated because it took me so long to get a diagnosis and now I'm getting either dismissed or very extreme. It's almost like the more you know, the worse the anxiety or the the frustration is even more amplified. And it, so what would you advise? Like, do you just directly say to your physician or your healthcare provider, like, hey, because this is the approach that I'm starting to take because I don't have a lot of tolerance because we're all taught the same way in medical school or in PA school or nurse practitioner school. When you become a provider, a dentist, I don't care what it is, we're all taught the same way. And there is racism or racial things that we just no, glide it's, it's, over. It's racism. It's, it's racism. racism. That's the right yeah. Ism. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. There's racism taught, like even for skin conditions, like we just glide over the fact that they present differently in, in African-American patients. And so knowing this though, when I go into a room, even for me as a provider, it's very frustrating because I'm, I'm constantly, do I just say to these people like, Hey, <laughs> yeah. and, and no, like, you know, I, I deal with this myself is very awkward. You don't want to be the angry, like, I don't want to even say it, but you don't want to be 
communication is important, right? So how you say things to people are important. And if even if race was not a factor, how your patients present to you, and I've been in a situation where a patient has been very difficult, those are where the mistakes are made because patients are become, they're becoming more anxious and they're becoming more difficult to deal with because of their presenting issues or complaints or the pain. And then the provider's like, I want to just deal with this and leave. And that's a normal human reaction. But I think for me, it's like, how do I say this in an effective way, but also letting my providers know, even as a practitioner, I know what's going on. How do we advocate for ourselves, Dr. Bentley? Like, how do we do that? I think that what has to happen, there's two things, is knowing when you need to have someone else in the room, because sometimes you can't, you don't need to always be your own self-advocate. Sometimes you need somebody else to be in the room. It's one of the reasons why I love doulas because that's uh, after that's what they next, do. That's our next episode, yes. Dr. I, yeah, I love, I love doulas. <laughs> it is one of my regrets that I did not have a doula because I was like, I'm going to have 600 doctors in the room practically <laughs> when I give birth. I you want know, everybody and their mom to be there, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, look, when you have twins, like you have your doctor, your anesthesiologist and like three nurses, the and babies the have their own doctor yeah. and the pediatrician and each of them had a pediatrician plus two nurses. There were 12 people in the room when I had my baby. So I just thought I don't need another person in the room, but I did need someone after. And so you don't necessarily like, obviously for your regular annual exam, you can't have a doula in there. But if you can have a family member in there, because for two things, for one, especially if it's someone who knows you well to know when you're downplaying something you need the truth teller right (laughs) to advocate to advocate for you and then also so to hold both you and your provider accountable and I realized that that although I'm very self-sufficient I realized I I don't think I really truly realized it until I got married Uh, my husband would occasionally come in and this is when we were still dating actually and he would come to my appointments how much of a relief, especially when I did not feel well, that I didn't have to be calculating how can I say this so they can understand that he would be able to or my sister or someone else would be able to share that information. So I say sometimes even if you are a practitioner or a highly competent individual, it doesn't mean that you don't need help, especially when you don't feel good. As someone who is a professor at a university health system, you know, I have, it's awkward for me because I'm slightly public facing. So people know who I am when I come in the room and we all pretend when I go. That, <laughs> that we, we don't, don't know, know what you don't know. know. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And getting, or someone's, oh, what's your specialty? When I don't know, oh, you know, oh, you're you're here at, at Duke Health. What's your specialty? Racism and medicine. And, <laughs> and then you see the trembles, like, oh my gosh, don't mess up. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, you so better I, not. So yeah. I always go back and forth. Do I tell people that what I no, do it is no, like, same, same. or do I want to experience what a normal, you know, pa- like a patient a, who has nothing off the street? Right. Yeah. And so I go back and forth, like, do I use my privilege? Do I not use my privilege? You can't erase the memory, though. You know, yes, Dr. Exactly. Bentley, it's like, <laughs> even if you go in and just see someone who is outside of Duke University, which is an excellent health system, and <laughs> you, but you still are, you're still, we are, we are privileged to be weaponized with the information that we Absolutely. have and the education. 
So let's move on because I'm trying to be very respectful of your time, Dr. Bentley. You have, you have yeah. twin girls, so I know they're going to be up <laughs> any minute asking me what is for Look, breakfast. They, they, they woke up early. Right now, they're they're downstairs with their dad watching okay. uh, Ada Twist Scientist. So. Yes. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> Perfect so, show. Yeah. I want to get to our topic today because we have about 30 minutes, and I know this is going by so far because you have such an amazing presence. So, Ebony, do you want to lead off with our, with our topic and just kind of – we're going to be talking talking specifically about, so we had an excellent introduction into, we have an expert, but I also want to get into COVID-19 because this is, this has impacted all of our lives. I don't believe there is a new normal. I think we've, the veil has been lifted and it's never coming down. And so we just need to really, I want to stay positive, but I also want to acknowledge that there is certain healthcare disparities that we are, more people are talking about. They've always been prevalent and they've always been present and they've been systemic since slavery. But I, I want to really address COVID-19. I do have a question since you're talking about community. And as a social worker, I care so much about community and the way that we support each other and support networks. I'm curious of how, especially with your research background, how you see COVID-19 impacting POC communities, particularly around like how we show up in family systems, but also in our communities at large. You know, one of the things that I hope becomes a part of standard, just standard operating procedures in the hopefully post-COVID era is the partnerships between community organizations as with health systems. I have never seen these partnerships for this long before as far, you know, as testing, vaccinations, where it's really let's have these conversations together. So it's not just let me bring my already fully formed and established health product and just drop it into your church or drop it into your community center. It really has been let's all talk about this and let the community lead because ultimately the community has a trust. <laughs> and I think that that's something that's new, but I also feel as though a lot of community partners um, that we see, whether it's churches, community health organizations, that they realize that they always knew that they had knowledge, but the fact that the power systems are recognizing it, they're not going to let that go. Uh <laughs> It's you so know, validating. When, yeah, it is. It, it, validating is exactly the word I was looking for. They have been validated that they knew what was the best way to get into the community, how to get the testing, how to get the vaccinations. You could see it in Philadelphia with Alice Stanford's work that that was not, although she is the face of that movement in Philadelphia for testing, like it really is. She acknowledges that it was a community partnership that I think will endure for other diseases. And that's the thing is that is that it has forced a lot of faith institutions as well as local, whether it's family organizations, to stop and say, what are we going to do so that we don't have to be vulnerable? COVID exposed a lot of vulnerabilities to the wider world. But these were things that we knew we knew this was happening. Like we knew. I think it was so individual though. You know, it's exactly. like, let's, let's pray for this person exactly. like, because they're going through stage four breast cancer. Let's pray for this person because they had an asthma exacerbation. And it's, yeah, it's picking off one by one. Whereas COVID was just like, it's everything. And because of these comorbidities, which we'll talk about, 
we are more at risk. But why were we at risk to begin with? What are these diseases? And I think the education, and I think Dr. Bentley, it's about the messenger, like, right? So it's, it's not just the message, it's the messenger. Absolutely. So getting black providers, getting black educators, black researchers, this is why this podcast, I'm like, I really need to do this because it's, it needs to come from us. It's for us by us, right? The old right. Absolutely. Period. Yes. Yes. I love it. I love it. I can't tell you how much how I'm excited about this, about this podcast and your approach, which is why when you asked me, I said, Oh, yes, let me get on here because that's something that's always been important to me. Is that this information, I like I have all this information in my head that should not just stay in my head or just to the other people I work with who who is an academic exercise because it's not an academic exercise for me. It is my family. It's real life. Anything that you hear me talking about as far as these diseases and disparities, I usually have a family member in mind. (laughs) You know, I have someone I think about when I'm developing my research questions or problems that I'm seeing over and over again, that's where it's at. And so I'm glad that other people are joining this journey to say, Let's stop. So when we talk about health disparities, why we have these, I think oftentimes, especially for Black people, that individual, the individualized approach or personal responsibility gets to be the emphasis. And so no matter what happens, you can say, I'm facing eviction. You can say, you know, I just lost a loved one. I lost my job. You can have all these things happening at one time, but let them see you roll up into a fast food joint. And they're like, oh, you don't take this seriously. You know, (laughs) you know that you have all these other stressors coming on or that I've been, or I don't have a primary care provider. So important. It's so important. And especially as so many places move to a more clinic model, Particularly for Black people, I really do try to say sometimes you can't avoid this clinic rotation model. But if you can see the same doctor so you can have that continuity of care, I think it's important for anyone, but especially for Black people, because so often we are not believed. And there's so much trauma involved of having to tell your story over over and and over and over over again. again. And there's so many gatekeepers, right? Right. Uh, Especially if you are in if you have public insurance, you have to go through so many gatekeepers in order to see the person that you need to see. Which is why single case agreements are important. Yeah, there, you that in there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Like I, I'm, I'm, te- I'm, I'm so, gosh, the fact that I've always been very aware of the disparities. I mean, it's, but it's, it's frustrating. I know my privilege and I don't take it for granted that when my provider says you need to see this specialist that I usually get a call within 24 hours to set up that appointment. But when I think about my family members who are in public insurance, that their doctor puts in a request and then on a good occasion, they may get a letter in three days to say that they can make an appointment with this list of providers. Sometimes it takes two weeks to get that letter And then you still have to make the appointment. And like you said, it'll take two months, three months before they can even see a specialist. Those are how those disparities exasperate. Then you get to see the specialist and they're like, why didn't you come to me sooner? Sooner. (laughs) Like, Why did you let this fester? And I was like, this was the earliest I could come and see. You know, I said I had stomach pain. I've had this 
stomach pain every night or enduring pain for the last year and a half. And it wasn't till I got to the one year mark that the doctor took it seriously. And then it took another six months before I could actually get in the same room with you. And then my referral expired. Like, it's, yeah, right. you know, it's, it's always you know, something. And I couldn't yeah. get there. And the appointment is like, it's usually not very it's close. It's on a bus to, route. No, yeah. On yeah. A bus route. yeah. yeah. <laughs> you had to pay for parking. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, it's the healthcare system. It's- the healthcare system was not made with poor Black people in mind or poor anybody, but especially not poor Black people. And then especially if you present as a poor Black person, the ways the assumptions that are made about you, or even the assumption that you can't afford something, even though you can, like, I'm not even going to tell you about this because it's expensive, but it's, you still have to share, you still have to say the options. Tell me about the clinic. Because there's product. nothing more important than your health. And I think sometimes, yes. sometimes I think it's hard for like as providers, we get very like, yes, but your health is like, it's very important. It's very important. Like this is the most important thing, but there's other important things. And we know that, especially as black women, we're like, okay, we want this maybe expensive medication, but we also need to like do X, Y, and Z for our families. And we're constantly kind of just like, but I think you, like you said, you have to be presented with your options. Absolutely. Let's talk about vaccines because we were talking about community-based programs and something that I really was frustrated with in the beginning of the pandemic or like toward when the vaccine came out, all this like, how people are not getting vaccinated because of like vaccine hesitancy and and that some of that is true, but I want you to speak really briefly about why there is this hesitation. I think there was also just accessibility issues. Absolutely. Like, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Bradley, for validating Absolutely. The, the accessibility <laughs> issue. So, yes. So, you know, I've been on a part of task force on this. How do we combat vaccine hesitancy? So hesitancy is two things. So hesitancy is I still have questions that need to be answered or I have concerns that haven't been addressed. That's number one. And number two is hell no. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Black people tend to be more in that I'm concerned or not right now. I'm concerned or not right now. You first. Exactly. (laughs) You first. Then in the the hell no. Now, don't get me wrong. There are folks who are in that hell no. I have family members who are in that not at all. It's, it's a little heartbreaking for me personally. And so for me, my approach and what I was encouraging, particularly in December, was to somewhat triage, right? Let's talk about the concerns that people have. Let's work with the folks who are like not right now so that when it's their time, they can. I mean, this vaccine rollout, the way that it prioritized 65 and older, yes, that makes sense for the general population, but that did not necessarily reflect the most at risk. We know that people of color in this country skew younger. That's the reason why when you see the statistics, you see age adjusted. So the percentage, so as soon as they started saying 75 and older, well, look, what do you think the life expectancy is for Black people, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) You might as well have said 100. You really have to take that into consideration. Yeah, you do. Like it's a big, big thing because if you're going to say 65 and older, and we're already more at risk because of the comorbidities and all these other things. Like you're not allowing us to get vaccinated. And then it's that you first. So then if you don't know anybody who's been vaccinated, are you going to be vaccinated? Like you need to see it in your own community, you know? So go ahead, Dr. Manley. No, you're exactly right. So when we look at the rollout, besides for the active misinformation that was going on, we also have to be honest about 
the miscommunication that was going on. So throughout last year before the vaccine, we kept hearing over and over people over 65, people with comorbidities, younger folks aren't really affected. So you have that happening, right? And then you have the vaccine rollout. The vaccine rollout was, and for some places started off with 75 and older, and then it was 65 and older, and as well as healthcare providers. You have to think about people who are living in congregate living situations. So rehab facilities or in um, hospice care, prisons. So you had these priority groups, right? So these priority groups, healthcare providers, obviously, and then teachers got pulled up for economic reasons. <laughs> and so what happened is that you spend the last 18 months telling Black people under 40 who are not healthcare providers or teachers or police officers that everyone else is a priority and at greater risk for COVID and the poor outcomes of COVID, even though statistics tell you otherwise. Why would I go get a shot that has, that people keep telling me you may be sick for two days when I, you spent the last year telling me that I was the lowest risk group. So, and oftentimes people interpret low risk as no risk. We see this when we talk about people under 40, even when you talk about children, well, children don't really have serious, no, it's like, no, it's because we, hopefully we protect children. My girls are still too young to be vaccinated. Hopefully by the end of the year, they will be. But because they're not vaccinated, my husband and I, we still act as though we are not vaccinated either because we can't put them at risk because I ain't having any more kids. Right, right. But we have these mixed messages and the miscommunications that keep happening about. So even if you're on the fence, we still haven't really explained to people about why they need to have it. We know throughout this pandemic. Black people are dying and hospitalized at a much younger age than anyone else. <laughs> you know, so it's all, well, Latinos have recently been getting more hospitalizations and deaths. But this information stays somewhat on news cycles, but it doesn't necessarily trickle down to folks who are just living their lives and not necessarily in public health and reading the New York Times. And this is a, a real issue because if we think about most people who have young children who are five to 11, we're talking about people in their 20s and 30s. We have not convinced a lot of them to get vaccinated. And now you're asking them, hopefully by the end of the year, to vaccinate their children with something that is I'm not telling you right now. Approved. Even how long it's taken me to get my patients to, to just try to do the HPV, the Gardasil vaccine, and that's been out for decades. It's very, it's it has to, public health campaigns need to really focus on their messaging and their messengers and their policies. Because let's talk about, Dr. Bentley, why we're more at risk. And I know we talked about comorbid conditions, but I also really want to highlight here, Ovid, we are more likely to have service industry type of jobs. We're more likely to live in cities where, cities where there is more air pollution and pollution in general, not just air pollution, toxic chemicals, things like that. Our neighborhoods are, tend to be more overcrowded. 
and also the inability to access a healthcare provider who you trust and regularly see. Or even anyone, even the distrustful ones you can't get access to. <laughs> right. You know, I can't, I can't even see a shady health provider. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can't even see someone I don't like. You know? Right, right. Yes. That's real. When you start talking, and we're not just talking about rural areas, which there are Black people in rural areas. That's, North Carolina has a large Black and Native rural population. So that's real, but also in cities. So state-run hospitals the last 50 years have been shutting down systematically. So these hospitals that were in Chicago and Detroit, major cities shut down. Small, like, family-based provider systems, those have been shut down. So emergency departments shut down in major cities. I know in Southern California, several of them shut down in Los Angeles. MLK Hospital in Inglewood just opened back up in the last five years. And that was a big deal. I remember when it shut down, I, it was like the next place in Los Angeles traffic that you could go in emergency was like 15, 20 miles away, which could be 30 minutes or two hours. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's life or death. That's life that's or death, life depending or death. on what we're talking about. And so this is not just a rule situation. So even during COVID, hospital systems have been shutting down. So COVID did not stop hospitals from closing and other health systems from closing. So that's important. As you said, Black people, and I think where New York becomes much more interesting uh, as far as living in New York, you have a densely populated place for even for the wealthy. However, their living conditions are still different. They have more well-ventilated spaces. They were traveling, right? And they still- And bring COVID back. To bring (laughs) COVID back. And they weren't having the same numbers as the folks who were working in their homes, right? So if you were looking in the more Black neighborhoods, the Latino neighborhoods in New York, you found COVID was running like crazy because you had- Homes that were not updated as far as ventilation, multiple generational homes that can be protective when it comes to raising a family, but can create a greater risk when it comes to how how do you isolate a family member when you've got a two bedroom house or two bedroom apartment and that you're sharing that it's your whole family and plus grandma and your aunt and uncle. Um, we have one bath. If you only have one bathroom, you know, when you looked at what the CDC was putting out on how to isolate a family member, the house I was growing up in, we, I don't know if everyone would have gotten COVID. And then, there's not as much incentive if you're going to lose your job. And then we talk about, you were talking about service and people in the service industry. We know that Black people are overrepresented in the service industry. You know, they're cooks, not chefs. Uh, <laughs> chefs don't nece- didn't necessarily get hit by COVID hard, but the cooks did. So the restaurant industry may not have had, if you were able to do takeout and delivery, you were able to survive. Who was doing the drop-off and pickup? Who was doing the door dash? Those things that put people at elevated risk that were considered to be essential workers. So the work they were doing was considered to be essential, but them as workers were not essential. And that was demonstrated even when we talk about the vaccine rollout. Out. So grocery store workers were like on the fourth or fifth tier. The fact that grocery store, like 
make it make sense, right? It doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so taxi drivers, it was taxi. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing. Even, even for non-black people, if you have those jobs, it's just, it's tougher to be able to follow any guidelines because it just doesn't align with your work. And there wasn't the safety protocols at the time. And it was only after the fact when these companies started to say, okay, we need to protect our workers or we're not going to have a business to run. And I actually think to your point about hospitals, I think COVID-19 accelerated the process of hospitals shutting down because we weren't able to do elective surgeries. We weren't able to do all the things that usually typically do bring the largest amount of money to a hospital organization. And I wanted to clarify when we talk about elective surgeries, oftentimes when you say elective surgeries, people think boob jobs, right? No, it's not we that. Did. It's a knee replacement. It's, it's, you know. Look, I, I had to get my gallbladder taken out. It was postponed six months. And trust me, my gallbladder was not happy about that six months. Uh, and, and quite honestly, if I was wasn't, if I didn't have private health insurance, I probably still would be waiting to get my gallbladder taken out. So when we talk about the elective surgeries, we talk about the people who were not able to get their regular care, things that had to become virtual care that really should have been in person that cost people their lives. Those are the things that we have to the casualties. So it's not just people who died of COVID. It's heart attacks didn't stop. All these other health emergencies didn't stop. People may not have gone to the ER. I know I have thought twice before going to the ER knowing when there's COVID surges. And so these things are important. And even when we talk about the disparities, when we talk about these disparities and think about personal responsibility, well, no one forced you to go to fast food. There's a couple things that you have to think about. What are the grocery stores in your community, right? So you know that you're in an affluent community when you see grocery stores, good, high-quality grocery stores on multiple corners. Like if you go to an intersection, I remember when I lived in Texas, when I was living in Austin, there was this one area where there was a Whole Foods, a Trader Joe's, a Sprouts, and HEB, which is like their big grocery <laughs> store yeah. here, all like on different corners, corners of, the same, yeah. of the same intersection. Right. So if you stood in the middle of the intersection behind me, there was a Whole Foods diagonally. You had the Trader Joe's across the street. You had the Sam's Club and then and the Sprouts. <laughs> it was like and it was and you get samples when you walk in the grocery store, like, does your grocery store give you samples of fine cheeses and sushi? That I remember because I just left Philadelphia when I lived in, I was, I was blown away because I was like, wait a minute, there are folks who are homeless and hungry and I could walk into this grocery store and ha- make a meal out of it and then go across the street to the next grocery store and make a I and the quality. And so, but when you are going down the street into less resourced communities and it's the corner store it's the corner store it's the bodega it's the gas station it's packaged (laughs) it's processed it's it's quick it's reliable it's cheap And cheap and unfortunately they do that they design that on purpose the liquor stores the fast food restaurants that you have access to i remember when i used to live in queens i used to be able to walk past several fast or drive past and this was me driving i had the luxury of driving 
drive past multiple bodegas before I was able to get to, I had to walk almost five or six blocks to get to a grocery store that was very limited. It was a very small mom and pop grocery store. And they, I was very fortunate to be able to have access to their products, but none of them were organic. And there's a big, there's a big controversy whether it needs to be organic fruits and vegetables or still fruits and vegetables. But even having access to just fruits and vegetables, not organic, was a big thing for me to have to really go out of my way to do. I am so with you. I When I lived in New York, it was the same situation. Walked to the local grocery store and my father was coming into town. And at that time, he was trying to manage his diabetes. It's under control now. But I was trying to find some sugar-free snacks. And they didn't have <laughs> right? And, you know, still processed. But I'm like, look, give me a cookie or something. You know, I'm mm-hmm. trying to keep this man alive. Yeah. <laughs> and I asked the manager, like, hey, where's your sugar-free products? And he said, oh, well, we don't have them. They weren't really selling, but you can call this number and tell them for the corporate office to send it. And he was like, but yeah, I can't shop here. I'm diabetic myself. Like, oh, oh, man. Yeah. That's the something. Yeah. <laughs> He's That's like, crazy. I can't shop here. Yeah. He's like, I can't shop here myself because I didn't want to have to go completely out of my neighborhood to grocery shop. But oftentimes that's the burden. And it's disheartening because I was in Queens. I lived right next to Brooklyn, obviously their neighbors. And Brooklyn is becoming very gentrified. And it's funny to see the neighborhood. I was there for two years, but just the shops that started popping up because they're pandering to a different market. And it's disheartening. As a healthcare provider, it's disheartening so, Dr. Bentley, I know it's an hour and four minutes. I'm keeping oh, track of time because I, I want to make it. sure I respect your yeah, time. As our final kind of remarks, and it doesn't, you can take as long as you, you need to because it's a big question. We know that there's all these problems, and we also hope you come back. We're also really hoping you come back eventually because you've just been such an amazing presence. And what do we need to be telling healthcare providers and policymakers and social workers and researchers like yourself who are doing such amazing research, what do we need to do better? What do you Everything. think? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, Start I, over. <laughs> Scrap you know, the system. <laughs> bare minimum in research, oftentimes we talk about doing a landscape analysis. And that's where you stop and look at what's already happening and what's being done. And so first off, you need to actually know what's happening in your own health system. You would be surprised, and probably not if you are a provider, uh, what is not necessarily known or shared or documented. And even the ways that we ask questions. So oftentimes, you actually have to talk about equity in every aspect of the patient encounter. And so we're talking about around race, around gender and gender identity and expression. We're talking about religion from everyone, from the front desk person to your signage, to the paperwork, to the nurses, to the provider and the aftercare. Equity has to be at every point. So it doesn't matter if the provider understands disparities and why we, if you get an elderly black man or a young black woman into your doctor, you make sure that they're there because they want help. Let's make sure that they get it. If your front desk person I see it is all the disrespectful. Time. I see it all the time. Yes. Especially, when it, especially in the LGBTQ community. <laughs> exactly. It nuts. Because unfortunately, I feel like people don't understand. In healthcare, we, sh- we need to adopt a, a more 
we need to just do an overhaul training, which is why I appreciate you and Ebony because you both do training for healthcare providers because it drives me nuts. And doctors and physicians come in all sorts of varieties and personalities. So some are not likely to go up to their front desk and say that to them because they're not their boss directly if they don't own the practice. Hey, this is how I want you to address my patients. But we have to take more initiative. If someone says to us in the room, oh, this person was this way to me, or you see that they're presenting to you in a different identity than what's on their, the HPI or whatever chief complaint or whatever you see when you look up their demographics as a patient, or we have access to all that information. When you walk into a room and you see that there's a, a mismatch or that people come to you with a complaint, you have to take it seriously as a provider because that is a difference between someone feeling comfortable to have care and even coming to your office to get care, which is our whole jobs. And what notes are you putting in their record, right? The irresponsibility of it. Are you referring to someone as a frequent flyer? Are you in your emergency department or any type of drug seeking? Like they have sickle cell disease. Give them what they need. They don't want to be here. (laughs) They don't want to have to explain to you what a crisis is. So it's... So I I say all that to say that, yes, we have to, when we talk about dismantling racism, I'm sure that's common phrasing everywhere in the health system these days. We mean dismantling it. And so when we're talking about racism and sexism and homophobia, because Black people can have all those things, (laughs) we really mean it. And, And oftentimes people only think about these individual actions, right? So we think about it for this one-on-one bad situation, a bad actor. But what are the consequences? So what are the consequences? And that's when it becomes systemic. If there are no consequences for a repeated bad actor, no matter how successful they are, no matter how well-known they are in the community or in the healthcare community, how well-published or how well-funded, if there are no consequences for them mistreating patients over and over again, then the system is supporting it and the system says it's okay. And that's when it becomes systemic racism. So yes, systemic racism is about the policies that put barriers to care, but it's also how we support people who are also a barrier in and of themselves. Who is the priority, right? Whose comfort is prioritized? I tell you that this person has mistreated me and you don't want to approach them because you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. Well, they already made me uncomfortable to the point where I don't want to come back to your practice. Or and the patient's I, the priority, right? Yes, exactly. Because if that patient is, I can tell you, if that patient has said something, it's already happened to many other patients. This one just told you. You always have to assume that it's not a one-off. Where there's smoke, there's fire. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I say all this that the reason why I still have optimism is because when I look at history, there were reasons for folks not to believe that change could happen. And sometimes it happens in your lifetime. And it's like this. And other times it's it, it takes more time. It's slow. Yeah. And you take your wins when you get them. And other times you just have to put, keep putting the pressure on. Because if you take the pressure off, we know nothing's going to change. You know, and I know racists love to use Martin Luther King without actually thinking about what he's talking about. But 
the reasons why he's so prolific. And if you really know the stuff that he's saying, he always talks about the time is always ripe to do what's right. But it's about what he was saying before he made that famous statement. What he was talking about before is that, to summarize, is that racist are always actively on the move. They do not take a break. Those folks who are trying to keep the status quo and maintain power, they are actively engaging and applying pressure to maintain white supremacy and power. That means we have to be diligent (laughs) because they're not taking a break. Don't get me wrong. You still need to have your joy and your self-care. You still have to take a break. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You still have to take a break. But collectively. Come back. But you gotta come you back. We gotta rotate. We can't all take a break at once. Right. Exactly. Right. We trade off. Yeah. We trade off. Yeah. We pass the baton. We trade up others. But the time is always right to do what's right. That means that the time is always now to keep doing it and keep moving forward. That is something I think about when I see these disturbing numbers, when I see infant mortality and maternal mortality disparities that have remained unchanged for at least 30 years, uh, you still have to keep pushing and talking and doing something until you see the change happening. Well, thank you, Dr. Bentley, so much. Like, honestly, you've just been such a wealth of knowledge for us. And we appreciate all the work as young African-American women. We see you as a beacon and your daughters are very mm-hmm. lucky and blessed to have you. And yeah. <laughs> I wish you nothing but good health. And I wish you and your family nothing but good health. And we just really appreciate you taking the hour and 15 minutes to speak to us so openly and so candidly and so in such a way that our patients, our listeners and, and future patients can understand what we see from the outside, from the inside looking out. Thank you so much for all the work you do, all the research that you do. It means so much. It's just so validating for us, for me as a healthcare provider to be like, we need to all change how, what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Clearly there's, yeah. cause you know, the only thing... If it's not the standard of care and it's not a research, if it's not peer reviewed, then it doesn't exist. So, I mean, that's for a reason. So we don't have misinformation and and false campaigns, but your research is why we can have, we can move forward and and establish and validate what patients are are experiencing because people are not statistics. So thank you so much for joining us. And Ebony, if you have any last words. No, I just thought you were very eloquent. And I think that you're giving us a clear direction of where we need to go as a society, but also as health systems. Hashtag apply pressure. That's what yes, I heard. Yeah. So. Yes. yeah. so thank you so much, Dr. Bentley. And we hope you have a beautiful day. And can I can I get you saying that you'll come back eventually? Even if it's <laughs> yes, absolutely. y'all are a blast. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I love what y'all are doing. I'm always one of the things I appreciate about my training is that it was always that your knowledge should be useful to the people that you do research on. And so that can only be useful if I talk and share my work. So thank you so much for providing this platform. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you you, all of our listeners for joining us today for Cure the Culture. Our next episode will be about doulas and what they are here to do. My research project in school was about doulas and postpartum depression and how they can truly be a lifesaver and be an advocate for you. So stay tuned with us for our next episode. And thank you once again to Dr. Bentley Edwards for joining us today and have a great and blessed week and stay safe. And remember, there's nothing more important than your health. Yes. Be safe and be well. 
Thank you for tuning in to Cure the Culture with Ebony Gadsden and Nia Phillips. If you have any questions or comments about the show, email us at cureforculture at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions expressed on this show, although research-based, are strictly conversational. All healthcare decisions should be discussed with your treating provider. Until next time, be safe, be well, be informed. Subscribe for a seat at the table with Ebony and Nia every other Friday at 8 p.m.